Hey everybody, Morgan here. We're kicking off a new segment on our Patreon, and we thought we would give the first episode for free to everybody to listen to, so you can see what we're working on. So in this episode, what I started doing is I started ambushing Murph with a 911 call. And then what I do is we walk through the call, and then we walk through the facts of the case, and Murph has to start giving me his opinion before he knows anything. Is it truthful? Is it deceptive? And then we walk through the facts of the case and play the call again and find out, hey, were you right? Were you wrong? What did we miss? And I will tell you, in this first episode, he caught something I missed, even with a transcription. So this is our new series. It's called 911, What's Your Emergency?, Part one, this is about a guy calling in saying that he just discovered his wife had drowned in the pool. We want you to listen to it. This is a freebie. You'll find everything at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where we have a ton of stuff about Narcos, the real inside story from the real DEA Narcos. We've got stuff that we do about Case of the Month. We've got our monthly live stream review of a movie that you vote on for our patented Narcometer. We rate it on a scale of 1 to 10 kilos for accuracy, authenticity, and believability. And then we also have a random surprise. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is we're doing. We're just throwing it out there and having fun. So you guys, listen to this first episode of 911, What's Your Emergency? Test your listening skills against Murph and me. See what you think and enjoy the episode. In the meantime, go visit us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Hey, players, playettes, playerettes. I don't know if that's an official word or not, but hey, welcome. It welcome. It is now. Playerettes. <laughs> players and playerettes, welcome to the February edition of our Patreon bonus episodes. And what has changed on this is we basically, everybody said, we're tired of Murph and JP. So we're done with you. <laughs> the 12 episodes. Here's the, here's, the, here's the important thing, though, for you guys to remember. Each one, every time we put out a second episode of that, that was a, that was a bonus episode above and beyond what we had promised mm-hmm. when everybody joined. Because we said we'd do one episode at the beginning of the month, and we'd do a random surprise in addition to the other things. So we've got our bonus episode. You get to vote for the Narcometer, monthly Q&A, uh, case of the month, monthly live stream, our monthly bonus video, depending on what level you're at, that's Warden of the Throne, and then our random surprise. And so that second episode was always a bonus. So we're going to go back to what we had promised right now for a while, because guess what's coming out? Mm-hmm. Guess, tell them, Murph. Tell More them, surprises. Tell them, tell them what you just scored. <laughs> so if you remember the episode with Chris Feistel, who was one of the case agents that brought down the Cali cartel, down in Columbia, uh, Chris and one of his uh, former partners, Dave Mitchell, have agreed to come on and go into depth about the takedown of the Cali cartel, the talk about season three of Narcos. So we're going to do 10 one-hour episodes with those guys. Uh, we haven't even set up the first interview yet. This is all just happening here in the last day or two. But this is all for you guys, you know, and, and when we run out of those, we're going to find somebody else to surprise you with. So thank you for keep coming back because we're going to try to keep giving you stuff that you won't get anywhere else. That's right. You won't get anywhere else because there's only one Murph and Morgan, and that's us. That's us. This is the only place you can get it. <laughs> so, make a hey, song about that at some point? Um, probably, you know, um, me and Bobby McGee. I think it was in yeah. that uh, phrase somewhere. <laughs> um, what we're going to do now is uh, I had this idea, and it's something I was doing. I was working with a friend of mine. We were recording this uh, series that we were pitching to TV called Inside True Crime. And we were going in, we were taking like one case and really going in depth on it. And the first case we did was 
John Bonet. We actually did one of our first uh, case of the month, I think, or one of our first episodes we did was on John Bonet Ramsey mm-hmm. and the case and my theory of it, which I, I think is backed up by science by deduction and by the sheer fact is that I think I'm right. So, you know, you know, those three things. <laughs> well, that, well, that last you... thing, that, that qualifies everything. Then, really. That qualifies everything, right? I think I'm right. So, but one of the things that came out of that is one of the things we were doing is because, you know, probably the most famous 911 call in America was the call that Patsy Ramsey made to Boulder police that morning uh, on December 26th. So I kind of got some ideas and said, what if we took other 911 calls? And took a look at them and determined and analyzed them to say, let's let you folks hear it. And Murph, Murph doesn't know what's coming up. He's hearing this call for the first time. But let's listen to this call because I know the story. I know the case. I know the outcome. And I've got a couple stories lined up here. We'll give you some context for it right before the call so you understand when and where it was happening. But you're going to hear the call as the 911 operator heard it. Then your first impression I want out of it from you, Murph, is what's your gut? What's your first gut feeling tell you? You know, Mm -hmm. is he truthful or is he deceptive? You know, or is she truthful or deceptive? Because there's two aspects to this. Are they being truthful or are they being deceptive? But also, we're going to find out too. Sometimes maybe they're involved. Sometimes they're not. Obviously, if they're truthful and they're not involved, that settles that. Sometimes they might be deceptive. And covering up for somebody not involved in the actual crime, but covering up. So, and I might, th- I actually have a couple surprises I'm going to throw your way that's just going to blow your mind. All too. right. So, Here all right. Here we go. But hey, so this first one, this first one comes to us from Pennsylvania on July 22nd, 2008. The call came in at 11.03 p.m. Eastern uh, Standard Time. Yeah, because it was during July. So it was during daylight savings time. So this is the call. As it came in to the 911 operator, so what we're going to do first is just play the call. Uh, I think it goes for a minute and a half or something like that, but you're going to hear everything. But just listen as close as you can, and then Murph, I'll ask you your first just initial impression. What what do you think? And then we'll take it from there. Are you ready? Can I take notes? You can take notes. You can take whatever. This is America. (laughs) America. Freedom. America. All right. You ready? You ready, Murph? I'm ready. Let's go. Here we go. Here's the call. July 22nd, 2008, uh, 11.03 p.m. in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Lancaster County, 911. Uh, everyone wipes this drown. I'm sorry? Everyone wipes this drown. Okay. And, and what happened? I had gone to bed about an hour and a half ago, and she was outside, and then I came out, and I saw the lights were still on the pool, but... Um, Oh god, this wood appears to still on. And I came out and I, I found her in, in the deep end pool. Okay, is she breathing? No, she's not. Is she still in the water? No, I pulled her out. Okay, do you want to try to start CPR on her? I will, I will, yeah. Okay, do you need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I, 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 I was lifeguarding, I, I know. Right, I, I can walk you through it if you want help. As, as I, I want to get her out of the pool. What's that? I want to get her out of the pool. You saw, she's still in the pool? I, I, I thought you said she was out of the pool. No, I, oh my God, she's, I'm sorry, she's out of the pool. I, yeah, uh, help me through it, please. Okay, you, so she is out of the pool? Yes. Okay, what I want you to do, is there anybody else there? My my children are asleep. How old are your children? Twelve, nine, and six. Okay. What we need to do is get her on her back. Yes, sir. Okay. You have her flipped over onto her back? She's on her back, yes. Okay. I want you to check and see if she has a pulse. Do you know how to do that? I do. Okay. 
There's no poll. There is none. There's none. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to start the, uh, the CPR, okay? Okay. Keep her head tilted back. Pinch her nose closed. Cover her mouth with yours and give her two deep, regular breaths, about one second each. Okay. Is that the, the siren for the fire department there? Yeah. Okay. Well, hold on. Please hold on. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. Is there somebody there? Not yet, no. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to start the compressions, okay? Go ahead and put your hand on her chest. I want you to pump her chest hard and fast about 30 times, about twice a second. Okay. Okay. Let the chest come up all the way between pumps. And let me know when you've done it 30 times, okay? Okay. All right, go ahead and do that. Okay. You, you did it about 30 times? Yes, okay. Go ahead and look in, I want you to look in her mouth and see if there's anything in there. Okay. The ambulance is there? Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Go get them, okay? Thank you. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. First impressions. Lying out his teeth. What makes you say that? <laughs> There's too many conflicts, and he, he doesn't have enough urgency in his voice that if that's his wife, the mother of his children, he's calling like, hey, I'm out of pack of cigarettes. You know, can you drop off a send an Uber over here with a pack of cigarettes for me? There just wasn't enough urgency to start with. Now, when he says, where is she? He said, is she still in the water? He said, no, I've already pulled her out. Within just a few seconds, oh, she's still in the water. Then he admits when the when the operator tells him to, you know, you need to start CPR, so pull her out of the water. Uh, oh, I know CPR. I'm a former lifeguard. A lifeguard knows if you're if you're really a former lifeguard, you would know to drag the person out of the water first, uh, then start CPR. I could see calling nine one one while you're uh, administering CPR, but he should have initiated CPR. The quicker you initiate CPR. The, the better chance the victim has of surviving, you know, and as an experienced lifeguard, he would know all this. Uh, then when he says, okay, let me, he says, hold on just a minute. And, and he's off the phone there just for a few seconds. And when he comes back, he's breathing heavily, like he just drug her out of the water. So this guy's telling uh, multiple versions of what happened. You know, he, what do he say? He got up and went to the bathroom. The first part was kind of hard to hear, but he went to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Yeah, I've got the transcript here. He said, um, it said Lancaster 911, County 911. Uh, my, his, this guy's name is Michael Roseboro. He says, I believe my wife just drowned. Uh, the 911 operator, I'm sorry, I believe my wife's just drowned. Okay, and what happened? I had gone to bed about an hour and a half ago, and she was outside, and I came out, and I saw the lights were still on the pool, but oh God, her shoes are still on. I came out, and I found her in the deep end of the pool. Hmm. So... I mean, there's, you know, with that, just based on those facts, I think we might have a murder on our hands right here. That's my initial opinion. Well, the other thing, too, that's kind of interesting is where did you get lifeguard from? Because he, I have the transcript. I actually, I actually had all of these calls transcribed verbatim. He doesn't say lifeguard in there anywhere. Well, when the dispatcher tells him you need to start CPR, do you know how to do that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that. I'm a former lifeguard. That's what I heard. Well, let's hear. 
Let's listen to that again. All right. Lancaster County 911. Uh, everyone wipes this drowned. I'm sorry? Everyone wipes this drowned. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I'll keep playing it. But he says, that's where he says, I believe my wife just drowned. He goes, I'm sorry, I believe my wife just drowned. Okay. And, and what happened? I had gone to bed about an hour and a half ago, and she was outside, and, and I came out, and I saw the lights were still on the pool, but, um, oh, God, the board tears are still on. And I came out, and I found her in, in the deep end of the pool. Okay. Is she breathing? No, she's not. Is she still in the water? No, I pulled her out. So right there, Murph, you're right. Is she still in the water? He clearly says, right, no, I just, or he says, no, I pulled her out. Now here, now we'll listen closely because this is where they get in to where the operator says, okay, do you want to try to start CPR on her? Okay. Okay. Do you want to try to start CPR on her? I will. will, will. Yeah. Okay. Do you need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I, 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 I would lifeguard you. I, I know. Okay. Right. I, I can walk you through it if you want help. You, you know what's it. interesting? You're right. And here's the so this is this is interesting for me too. I just caught something in here. I, I actually use a transcription service to where they were supposed to do it word for word. Mm-hmm. They missed that. Ah. They missed that word lifeguard. Uh he says, Do you want to try to start CPR on her? And let me just back that up a little bit and let's listen to that again. Yeah. I will, will, will. Yeah. Okay. Do you need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I I I I, I would lifeguard you. I I know. I was a lifeguard, I know. And what the transcription says is, um, okay, do you need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I would like to, I just, I don't. Uh, I can walk you through it if you want help. I want to get her out of the pool. Here, you have just highlighted one of the dangers in believing that what the written word says is an accurate transcription. <laughs> True. <laughs> Well, hey, look, this is this is one of the ways, this is why you have to be very careful about relying on what is transcribed. I got to tell you, I'd listened to that a couple of times. My hearing's not the best because of uh, genetic stuff. Because you're old. No, I'm not old. I'm just tired of listening to you. Yeah. Plus, (laughs) my wife yells in my ear. Um, But yeah, so you're right, though. So see, that adds an additional layer of complexity to this. He says he was a lifeguard. So if he was a lifeguard, what assumption would you probably make about somebody who used to be a lifeguard? Oh, first thing you do is drag them out of the pool. That's why they sit on the, on those high chairs where they can look down at a swimming pool and can ju- actually jump into the pool. That's the first thing you do. You don't run to the phone and call help. You know, you know what to do. And you sure as hell can't do CPR in the water, can you? No, not at all. And you know what? The, I mean, the I don't, maybe the... You know, when you're playing this, I close my eyes so I can think of what I'm listening to. But when I was an agent with DEA making cases, if you had wiretap cases or, you know, CAL units where you're wearing a wire undercover, you had to transcribe your own tapes. You know, so you have to pick up an ear on, on picking up those words. And you're exactly right what you just said. The accuracy is of paramount importance if you're going to introduce that into court. Because as we saw here, and actually it adds to it now, where he says, I was, the, I was a lifeguard. So we can make some assumptions. Now, what I thought was interesting, tool too, is I, I want to get her out of the pool. And that's where the guy says, she's still in the pool. Let's listen to the next part of that for a second. Right. I, I can walk you through it if you want help. As, as I, I want to get her out of the pool. What's that? I want to get her out of the pool. Uh, she's still in the pool? I, I, I thought you said she was out of the pool. I, oh, my God. She's, I'm sorry. She's out of the pool. I, yeah, uh, help me through it, please. Okay. All right. Which is it? <laughs> well, it's one of those things you go, it should be pretty clear, right, that 
she's either in the pool or she's not. There is no. This isn't like sort of being pregnant. Either you are exactly. or you aren't. That's exa- I was thinking the exact same analogy there. You know, and, and here he said she's in the pool, then he says she's No, he says he's got her out of the pool, then she's in the pool, now she's out of the pool, and now I need help. I mean, I, so I can see, okay, go ahead and give me the help. I know how C, I know CPR. When he was a little bit nonchalant about the I'm a lifeguard, I know what to do. Uh, well, then why aren't you doing it? Exactly. I mean, the <laughs> You know, I hate to keep beating the same point, but the quicker you start CPR, the the better chance a victim has of surviving. It's that simple. And if you've, you, I was never a lifeguard, but I've had CPR training and first aid and all that. And that's, I know that. I'm sure you know that. Anybody else that's ever taken that training knows that. But uh, the the uh, suspect here, the husband, hmm, doesn't seem to know that all of a sudden. Yeah, we got a little bit of a problem here with the old husband here. So uh, I think there's a, a couple neat things that we can continue on. But let, let's do that because the other thing, too, it's going to be very important. I want you to listen to the next part and listen to when he's asking him questions about, you know, is anybody else there? Okay. You, so she is out of the pool? Yes. Okay. What I want you to do, is there anybody else there? My, my children are asleep. How old are your children? 12, 9, and 6. 12, 9, and right. 6. So we're establishing he's got three. So what what is your assumption from that when he says, is there anybody else there? And he says, my children are asleep. What is your assumption? He killed his wife while his kids were sleeping, so there wouldn't be any witnesses. Mm-hmm. And how old are your children? And he says, 12, 9, and 6. How many children do you believe are at the house? He's, well, that'd be three, right? Well, yeah, it's not tough math, math, Murph. I know <laughs> I it is for, I for you. Did you not get that? It is, it is not a trick question. You don't add those numbers together and come up with one. <laughs> you don't average them out. No, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so no. He, he says, "How old are your children? Twelve, nine, and six. So, one of the things you have to do when you when you listen to people or they you listen to how they answer. You know, he said, "How old are your children?" Uh, my, he says, my children are asleep. How old are your children? 12, 9, and 6. So there is a working assumption now based upon the way the answer, you believe that there's three children at the house. Mm-hmm. We're going to find out later if that's true or not. Ah. All right, let's listen to this next part. Okay. What we need to do is get her on her back. Yes, sir. What strikes you about that right there? What we need to do is get her on her back, and he goes, yes, sir. Yeah, it's, there's again, there's still no urgency in this guy's voice to have been trained in CPR. The first thing you do is not get them on the back. The first thing you do is get them on their side and make sure there's no obstruction in their airway. I think the dispatcher gave them the wrong instructions to start with as well. Especially with being in the water, because you, you, what you want to do is one of the reasons you either put them on the side or even put them on their chest and you know uh, do compressions actually from the back is in case they may have drowned, you want to get some of that water out right. of the lungs so that you can get the open airway. Right, and, that's, and, and who knows? There could be an obstruction in her mouth, and if there is... You can punch on her chest all you want to, but she's not going to get any breath if there's something obstructing the airway. Right. So let's listen to the next part here real quick. Okay. You have her flipped over onto her back? She's on her back, yes. Okay. I want you to check and see if she has a pulse. Yeah. Do you know how to do that? I do. Okay. There's no pulse. How long between the time that the dispatcher says, uh, do you know how to do that? He goes, I do. He goes, Okay. Between the time the 911 operator says, okay, and uh, Michael Roseborough comes back and says, no pulse, it's about a second. Yeah, it's very quick. Very I quick. don't know about you, but 
Um, uh, and again, I'm not prejudging anything. All I'm saying is that if you start adding these things up, mm-hmm. I start going, and look, we've both done it before, uh, went through the EMT training, especially as a trooper. You know, we, we crash management, injury technicians. We spent a lot of time looking for the different places to get a pulse. You can get, right. you can get a femoral pulse, right? You can get a radial pulse. You can get a carotid pulse. There's many different places you can get a pulse from. So, the, you know, the question, but to do it in a second, a lot of times you sit there for a little bit and you go, you want to detect because if, if it's weak, you can detect a weak pulse. Sometimes it's what they call weak and thready, so you can detect a weak pulse. But I thought that was pretty quick on that point. Let's listen to the next part. Well, before I'm you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, before you play that, as you're saying that, I was feeling my for my carotid pulse, and I have never put my fingers on my throat and found it the first time. You, you end up... You have to move it around. You have to slide up and find the right place where the carotid is. Exactly, which takes several seconds. That's a good point. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I can't believe it came from you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, well, you, you found lifeguard, so we're going to throw you one here. All right, mm-hmm. let's listen to the next part. What we're going to do is we're going to start the, uh, the CPR, okay? Keep her head tilted back, pinch her nose closed, cover her mouth with yours, and give her two deep, regular breaths, about one second each. Okay. You got the, the siren for the fire department there? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Okay. So I think he's dragging her out of the pool. Yeah. That's where he comes back because when he comes back on, you'll hear he's kind of out of breath all of a sudden. And why would you drag her out of the pool at that moment in time? Because helps her there. He wants her You hear the fire department, yeah. right? He, he wants that first initial appearance that they see when they arrive to be that she's out of the water and he's trying to save her life. Okay, let's let's continue on. Okay, that's fine. Is there somebody there? Not yet, no. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to start the compressions, okay? Go ahead and put your hand on her chest. I want you to pump her chest hard and fast about 30 times, about twice a second. Okay. Okay, but the chest come up all the way between pumps. And let me know when you've done it 30 times, okay? Okay. All right, go ahead and do that. You're doing the same thing I was doing. I was, I was 1,001. 1,002. Just counting. I mean, it's close, yeah. right? So, but uh, again, at this point, so I don't know if he's doing it or not. But again, think about this. Uh, <laughs> here's the other thing. If you, this is 2008, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he is calling from uh, some kind of a landline because, uh, that you know, they've got the information and stuff. But Steve, think about this. If you're out on concrete with the body and you go to do CPR, what do you do with the phone? Now you got to lay it down. And if you lay a phone down, what are you most likely going to hear? I don't know. Well, you're going to hear noise yeah. like that, something you're going to hear something putting down because then you have to pick it back up again. And a lot of times your voice, you know, is modulating away. So as I'm listening to this, I'm going, is he actually putting the phone down on the concrete to do CPR? Right. And and you know what? Even if it was a cell phone, you're not going to hear his voice as clearly as we're hearing it. Right. Because his mouth is up to the neck after the microphone. Right. So let's, let's hear just the very last end of this now. Go ahead and look in, I want you to look in her mouth and see if there's anything in there. Okay. 
He wanted her to look into his mouth, to your point, right, to see if there was an obstruction. Mm-hmm. How long did that take him? Very quick, wasn't it? Yeah, about less than two seconds. This, Again, here we go. He's pretending to go through the motions, not actually going through the motions. And there's no witnesses there yet to see if he actually did it. Yeah, because he can say he did it, but the, the, what's working against him is the natural issue of timing, right? right? So if you're doing this and I'm having to set a phone down and pick it back up, I cannot be doing CPR with two hands and holding a phone right. and talking to the 911 operator at the same time, right? And it's important to remember he's experienced because you know how you put one hand on top of the other when you're right. doing those compressions. You're right. You can't let's, hold a phone and do that correctly. Yep. So let's listen to the final piece of this. The ambulance is there, sir. The ambulance is there? Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Go get them, okay? Thank you. All right. Thank you. This boy's got some explaining to do. He says, thank you. Mm -hmm. So, again, I I obviously haven't dissuaded you that the call is not legitimate, right? Right. You firmly believe this guy's lying? Yes. Uh, Let me ask you a question, Murph. Are you sure? Uh, Based on the evidence I have in front of me right now, I would give it about a 90% probability of yes. All right. So let's dig into just a little bit of facts of the case. So this is Michael Roseboro. His wife's name is Jan Roseboro, and they're living in Lancaster County, uh, Pennsylvania. And obviously, Pennsylvania is known for a lot of Amish up there. Uh, I've been up to the Lancaster Airport before. Uh, Just a very pretty area, right? Kind of laid back. Town he lives in is about 3,000 people. So the story they tell everybody is, I mean, these guys met uh, in high school, I, I think. Uh, and, you know, they, they small town, so they, they ended up growing up, you know, next to each other. Uh, he, didn't look, he didn't have to f- look very far, you know, for somebody like this. So, uh, but he got married in 1989. So a uh, local girl, her name was Jan Brinkley. She became Mrs. Michael Roseboro. Now I'm getting some of this, some of this comes, by the way, some of this was so salacious, I guess, for the media. This was, it was on 48 Hours. A book was written about it. So I'm pulling a lot of this from, you know, open sources and stuff and, you know, the case transcripts and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they started down raising a family. He was a, a funeral director. You know, he ran a funeral home. So and, you know, that that's probably not an occupation I would do, but it can. It's, it is. Uh, I know of people who run funeral homes and they do pretty well for themselves. Right. I mean, they, they make they make a good living doing that. It's a family business. Mm-hmm. They're the last ones to let you down. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> OK, keep going. <laughs> oh, my God. That's why I had to be a cop. I'm not a comedian. Uh, that's that is for sure. So but apparently, you know, everything was going so well, they expanded their home in 2008. And their brand new shiny swimming pool was open for the summer season. So this is a brand new swimming pool that just opened up. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were over there. So, uh, you know, you've got the now you've got this night that the 911 call comes in. So, uh, however, though, here's the other thing, though. Sir, uh, Sergeant Larry Martin of the East Cocalico Police Department was one of the first detectives at the scene. The police got to the house just after 11 p.m. At least three of the children were asleep in the house at that time, Sergeant uh, Mike Martin explained. Michael Roseboro told us he'd gotten to bed. His wife stayed out by the pool. He woke up approximately an hour later, noticed the lights were around the pool, on around the pool, went out to extinguish the lights and found Jan in the pool, got out and did CPR on her. Now, I want to take you back for a second because in the initial uh, part of that, 
I want you to listen to this too again, Murph, real quickly. Just listen, just only the first few seconds, and listen for a key word here. Lancaster County nine one one. I'm sorry. I my wife just drowned. He says, "I believe my wife just drowned." So if he went to bed an hour and a half ago and he came out, what is the assumption that led him to believe that his wife just drowned? That's like saying, I just got home. I just, you know, uh, threw the trash away. When somebody says, I just, what does that imply to you in terms of recency? Like, yeah, immediately or close to being immediate. So one of the key trigger words, right, for this, the first time I ever heard it, one thing is that I just did this and I'm going... Well, you said you've been gone. You you went upstairs an hour and a half earlier, so now you're out later. How do you know she just fell in the water? How do you know she just drowned? By the way, here's the other thing, too. How do you know she's dead? Right. He says she just drowned. If somebody drowned, you assume that they're dead, right? Yeah, and we still don't know if she's in the water or out of the water. Well, we don't, but the you know the nine one one operator is going off of you know there's this assumption that initially what you're telling me is correct until some of these facts and circumstances come out. But you heard the nine one one operator saying, basically, what she's still in the pool? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. I thought you said you got her out of the pool. Oh, yeah, you're right. Your dog, dog gone it. You know. <laughs> yep. I screwed that one up. So. Anyway, so uh, what happened was Jan was rushed to the hospital. Uh, Michael stayed with the kids. She was pronounced dead before midnight. So not a whole lot of information. And again, we're not doing a whole case review. You know, we're not diving deep on the case to tell you a story about the case. This is really about analyzing 911 calls and what goes into it. Yeah. But if, you know, the, the assumption you can make is that if they continued to work on her, there was still some viability of life, as they say. I mean, they, they believe that they could still save her. So... If somebody had been in the water for an hour and a half, there'd be no chance. Right. Um, not not unless they they have these. And I know somebody who's like, well, in Siberia, they've had people under the water, under the ice, you know, for two hours. Well, okay, that's Siberia. That's cold water. It slows the body down. This is July yeah. summertime 2008. in Pennsylvania. Summertime in Pennsylvania. There's a song, too. Summertime <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Um, why, why are we having fun? It's, uh, you know, guys, dark humor. Yes, pardon us. Yeah, um, absolutely. But um, so anyway, they rush her to the hospital, which means that she uh, she might he might have been truthful. She, maybe she just drowned because she's in the pool. Right. So now let's start thinking about this as an investigators. If you wanted to make it look like somebody drowned, there's two ways you could do it. Right. You could try and hold them under the water. But what do you think she would probably do? Oh, she's going to fight you. Mm-hmm. So you would end up with what? You're going to have bruising somewhere on her body, whether around her throat or her arms, wherever you're pushing on her to hold her down. And as you as the perpetrator, what might you have? Scratches. Scratches, bruises as well, right? Defense, you know, something where she's... So uh, what's another way that you might make somebody drown? Uh, Blunt force trauma to the head and push them in the pool. Did you used to be an investigator or something, Murph? I did. I did. Believe it or not. I know people don't believe it, but yes, I was. Yeah. So. <laughs> in fact, I was, as you were a little bit earlier, I'm thinking, okay, now how how could you get her in the pool to make it look accidental? You know, I would guess if you could get her in the right position and bash her head against the side of the pool enough to cause blood, you know, and that's enough to knock her out and then leave her in the pool and just let her drown because she's knocked out. But that's that's a lot of ifs. You know, I mean, it's tough to do. So initially, the drowning was ruled accidental until the autopsy. Mm -hmm. 
Guess what the autopsy well, showed? I'm going. I'm going to guess either ligature marks around the neck or some foreign substance in her body that might have knocked her out. An autopsy confirmed that Jan Roseborough, 45, the mother of the couple's four children, was beaten and choked before she drowned in the pool next to their home in Reinholds, about 55 miles east of Harrisburg. Mm-mm-mm. There you go. So Roseborough initially told police he spent the afternoon and early evening of July 22nd with his family in the pool area. He said he went inside the house around 10 p.m. while his wife stayed by the pool. He fell asleep in his bedroom. He said as he found his wife about an hour later. I thought it was an hour and a half, but still, it's an hour later. Mm-hmm. Lighting, lying at the bottom of the deep end of the pool, pulled her out of the water, called for help, and tried to revive her. Uh, three of the children were home. The oldest, a 17-year-old boy, was at a friend's house. So, so there's four now, kids. Four kids, right? Three at home. So he was correct on that part, right? But he had four kids. Now, why might you, as a co-director of a funeral home, want to make it look like your wife drowned? Insurance money. Accidental death. No. Mm, you got a girlfriend on the side. Oh. Oh. I hope he didn't have sex mm-hmm. with her. Is that what you're alluding to? I'm not alluding to anything. I'm just telling you what the evidence is going to show. Oh. Oh. A funeral director charged with beating and drowning his wife wanted to end his 19-year marriage because he was having an affair with a younger woman, was eager to marry her, prosecutor said. Only hours before he called 911 to report the drowning on the night of July 22nd, Michael A. Roseborough had sex with his girlfriend and told her he planned to leave his wife so he could be with her, according to a police affidavit. There's evidence provided by the girlfriend that he had a motive to kill his wife, he had an opportunity to kill his wife, and he took that opportunity, Lancaster District County District Attorney Craig Stedman said, at a news conference. Well, you know what? hope the son of a bitch rots in jail. Well, he's going to. So, you know, as we go through it, uh, you know, as we start looking at a little bit more of the information— Here's where the, here's why they arrested him. Police arrested Roseboro after reviewing circumstantial evidence and interviewing his mistress, uh, Angela Funk. Excerpts from a series of romantic emails that Roseboro wrote to Funk are included in the affidavit. So he wrote her uh, romantic emails. You know, these rocket scientists, they leave a trail with neon red lights. Does, does anybody not know in this day and age— Text messages, emails, your phone's location. All of these things are used to prove or disprove whether or not you were there, you weren't, or at least your phone was or wasn't there. Right. And normally we can figure out that you're with that phone, right? So, absolutely. This guy, he's left, he left a paper trail or a, what we'd call a paper trail, but that's kind of all encompassing mm-hmm. that a rookie officer could track. I mean, that's ridiculous. Guys, he should have picked another career path other than being a criminal. So, at least credit to the mistress, to the girlfriend. Uh, she was 38. She came forward three days later after the drowning and told police that she and Roseboro had sex during the afternoon of July 22nd. In one of two phone calls he made to her that evening, he told her he planned to leave his wife so they could marry. And he wrote, I am deeply, madly, and completely in love with you, baby. I have never experienced feelings like this in all of my 41 years, and I know the best is yet to come. He wrote in an email to Funk earlier that day. In another email, a week earlier, Roseboro told Funk, I can't live without you in my life. I need to make you my wife, and I need to be your husband. I have never been so sure of, all capitals, anything in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I just go ahead and put a noose around my neck here and kick me out of the tree. So there's actually another things too. So a couple other things as you start investigating and you start adding to the case. In the affidavit, the detective said that the evidence indicates that Roseboro and his wife were the only two adults in the house for roughly 90 minutes before Roseboro called for help. Now remember, three children, 12, 9, and 6, mm-hmm. asleep in the house. Mm-hmm. Neighbors told police they noticed that the exterior lights that normally turn on automatically mm. to illuminate the pool area were off shortly after 10 p.m. The detective said he believes Roseboro may have turned the lights off to provide cover while he cleaned up the murder scene before police arrived. <laughs> and Steve, adding to the rocket scientistness of this idiot, police found a bucket and rag smelling of cleaning fluid near the pool. Jeez, <laughs> oh, idiot. Police found a bucket and rag smelling of cleaning fluid near the pool. The coroner who performed the autopsy said Mrs. Roseboro's wounds would have caused substantial bleeding. But a county forensic team could find no traces of blood inside or outside the house. Hmm. Only a resident, only a resident who would want this to appear as an accidental drowning, would have the incentive to clean up the scene. And what did this guy do for a living? Uh, he ran a funeral home. He knew how to clean up. He dealt with bodies. Yep. He dealt with blood. He dealt with other stuff like that. So it's not looking too good for the home team, right? No, but hey, but you know what? You said of a community of about three thousand people. That the EMT response was outstanding. I mean, they were there within what a minute, no more than two minutes, a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, you're they're they're on the scene. You know, he calls in. They're dispatching stuff. You hear, yeah, within the 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 nine one one call itself is about two minutes and fifty seconds. So wow, that's, out, that's outstanding a, response. Yeah, yeah, I was shocked. I, I was just thinking it'd be a bigger city. I was a little bit surprised here. It was only three thousand people. Yeah, you know, smaller communities like that sometimes they don't have people that are at the EMT site, you know, like like we had a rescue squad in West Virginia, and we did have people that would volunteer to spend the night there and respond to calls, but, man, that two- or three-minute response, response time, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, of course, like when 48 Hours covers it or whatever, they always make it dramatic and stuff. And um, uh, But here's the other thing, too. Michael's sisters rushed over to the house to be at the brother's side. Now we've got observations of him at the crime scene. Michael Roseboro wasn't only composed. He could not have been more cooperative. Sergeant Martin said he came to the police station voluntarily and willingly and never asked for a lawyer. When he initially came, yes, he came and spoke with us. Later around 3 a.m., Michael even allowed detectives inside his home. Uh, We were there by Michael's invitation. We did not have a search warrant at the time. Uh, Police found nothing unusual on their first walkthrough. I did not see anything suspicious. Less than an hour after Michael Roseboro called to report finding his wife's lifeless body in the swimming pool, Jan Roseboro was pronounced dead at the hospital. So, but here's the other thing, too. You know, this is a mistake. And I will tell you, one of the cold cases I've been assisting on, and plus, I've got a 911 call from that case. When this thing concludes or when we can do it, when you listen to this call, Murph, I guarantee it. You'll you'll have the same reaction I did the first time I heard it. But you may what you do is it's this anchoring in the mind that says, "Hey, well, it's a suicide or it's a drowning," and you go in there acting it's like that, as opposed to, "No, dude, I treat everything as a homicide, as a crime scene until it's proven otherwise." Because then you're assured of collecting evidence, treating it as though it is a crime, right. and if you don't need it later. You don't need it later. So here's what happened. So, I mean, initially they did the walkthrough. They were, they were assuming that it was an accident. Uh, here's what the coroner said. 
or actually the forensic pathologist. So there's two roles here. So there's a coroner and a forensic pathologist. A coroner says, hey, yes, you're dead. You're not, you know, you're not dead or mm-hmm. death is most likely homicide. But then a forensic, forensic pathologist actually does the autopsy. They right. are a medical doctor. So, right. um, so here's this pathologist, Wayne Ross. My reaction when I first came across the body of Jan Roseboro was essentially an open mind. I've got a drowning case here. That's what he was told, right? But as he performed the autopsy, things began to change. When you look on the inside of Jan Roseboro's body, what, what did you see, the attorney asked. Well, my concerns were raised significantly. There were bruises basically to the back of the neck. Uh, we have strangulation here, but we also have a very particular type of strangulation. Jan was strangled with a carotid chokehold. Mm. Which means you've got a carotid artery running on each side of your neck, mm-hmm. and if you compress it, if you can pinch as he off. says, yep, as uh, the doctor explained, that along the sides of the neck are two carotid arteries. I can compress the left side and the right side at the exact time, and it takes seconds for somebody to go out. I can tell you that is a fact, because during training, when we were training on it, now it's, people say it's a chokehold. No, it's not a chokehold. It does not go across your windpipe. It is not choking you out. It's called the LVNR, lateral vascular neck restraint. And what it's designed to do is occlude the blood flow to your brain. And if you occlude that, here's what here's what it feels like. You put it around, and all of a sudden, things start getting a little fuzzy. You start seeing orange tunnels, and then you're out. Yeah. You're not dead. You're just unconscious because you've stopped the supply of blood to the brain. But it does leave marks. It does leave bruising. And, of course, this guy being a funeral director, he's had to embalm bodies. Do you think he probably knows where the arteries are? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, guess what? They continued the autopsy. Dr. Ross also discovered bruises all over Jan's scalp. They told me she had been beating. She had been bludgeoned, and she'd been hit about her head numerous times. The cause of death was multiple traumatic injuries, and that was a combination of strangulation, blunt force trauma to the head, as well as drowning. It was only after I'd done the complete internal examination I was convinced this was a homicide. So what first appeared to have the hallmarks of an accidental drowning was now a murder investigation. And you know what? One of the things they did not used to do, and they're doing it now, there's a book out there, too, called Analyzing 911 Calls, and I've actually spoke to one of the authors of that book. Um, and he's a captain in Ohio, uh, worked with a, an FBI uh, PhD, basically, uh, and they went back, they started analyzing 911 calls. One of the key things to do, it, we didn't know it at the time when we were pulling 911 calls, but we wanted to pull these calls because we wanted to know, uh, you know, hey, what what were they saying? Sometimes you'll hear things. Uh, they might you might not hear otherwise, or the dispatchers won't tell you. So that's to mm-hmm. your point, Murph. Going back and listening to the, just don't trust the transcription you get. You got to go back and listen to that call. And it's funny you said that. You do it with your ears, or you do it with your eyes closed, so that you're focusing only on the audio track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the the first time you played that call. I didn't. I missed all of that. There was an awful lot of background noise in the nine one one center there. So here's the other thing too. So. Now we know, now we've got a ruling, so now you're going to go in and confront the husband. If the wife had actually been murdered, let's assume that she had been, let's make an assumption, here's the theory of a case, she had been murdered by somebody else and thrown into the water, and it's no longer a drowning, and I come up to you, Murph, you are now Michael Roseboro, and I say, Mr. Roseboro, your wife was killed, and let's assume that you you did not kill her, that you are not, you had nothing to do with this. She was found at the bottom of the pool, and we say she was killed, multiple blunt force trauma, what are you going to say to the police? Oh, you're going to be shocked. I mean, I'm, I'm would, I would be in disbelief. I'm not sure what would come out of my mouth. You know, I, 
I just, I don't know. I, I certainly, even that when I made the initial call, I'm pretty sure I'd be a hell of a lot more excited than that guy was when he's calling. Hey, I think my wife just drowned. So I thought who could have done this? You know, it was a shock to a small town. Um, the sister of Jan or, or one of the sisters said, Hey, you know, I thought who could have done this? Who would have done something like this to Jan? Yet, strangely, it didn't appear to be as shocking to Michael Roseborough. He was told that it was actually a homicide. Got no real reaction from him. Not surprised, not outraged, not anything like, you mean murder? What about my family? What about myself? What about our kids? Are we safe? Didn't hear any of that. Now, you could say, okay, part of that might be because being a funeral director, but guess what? Guess what always happens a day after? They get, or sometimes, got an anonymous tip the day after. And how did they find out about the girlfriend? Oh. One of the patrol officers received a phone call from a person initially wanting to be anonymous, stating that she had information that Michael Roseboro was having an affair with the person by the name of Angela Funk. Angela was also married and a mother or two, working as an insurance adjuster and literally living a stone's throw from the funeral home. Uh, uh, you know what? And this guy, as much experience as he's had with bodies at a funeral home, you would think he would know that if a body's dead and then you try to make it appear that it drowned, what drowning comes from is water in the lungs. You can no longer get oxygen. Right. Well, if the person's not breathing when you when they go in the water, there's, there's no, no water in the lungs. Yeah, there's no bodily function to suck that water in. So that's you know, holy cow, this guy. <laughs> he's certainly not the brightest bulb on the tree, is he? Well, you know, and to Angela's credit. Um, you know, she cooperated, never got a lawyer, turned over emails and everything. But the minute that came out, guess what Roseboro did? Mm. What? Lawyered up. Oh. Got himself a lawyer and said, uh, sorry, I ain't talking anymore. You know, not, you know, not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Um, <laughs> now, but here's the other thing to your point too, Murph. This goes back into some of it. As police were taking a closer look at Michael Roseboro, they noticed minor scratches on her face. Whoever killed Jan Roseboro beat her in such a way as to disguise the injuries. But at that point, we started to think he might have been scratched by the victim. It's still not a clear-cut case, you know, because there was no apparent signs of struggle because he had time to clean up. You know, he beat her, um, you know, and then threw her in the water at the last minute, you mm -hmm. know, to make it look like she drowned. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so uh, you always got people saying, oh, he would never commit murder no matter what, um, that uh, oh, but now, the other thing they tried to do, too, is uh, one of the people pointed Jan's jewelry, a diamond ring, an expensive watch, worth about 40000 that was suddenly missing. And she thinks Jan was wearing the jewelry that night. There's no question it was a robbery, Roseboro's attorney said. But they were more focused. <laughs> oh, it's a robbery, right? At the same time, your main suspect is having sex with the mistress uh -huh. an hour before, you know, just a little bit before he kills her and is writing stuff like, you are everything to me and I love you. When you take me as your wife, you'll be the happiest day of my life. That's what she wrote to him. Uh, I'm the happiest man alive. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to make every day together feel like it is the first day. You know, uh, of course, you got this infatuation stuff going on and they're sending emails back and forth. They were obsessed with each other. But when he says he was going to make it happen, you know, you start looking at that stuff, you start looking at the emails, mm -hmm. and you start saying, uh, I'm going to make it happen, we got to make this happen now. This starts implying motive. And then what happens is you get, uh, these emails go back and forth. See, here's the other thing too, Murph, how would you believe, how do you believe, how do you in your mind rationalize away the fact is that they're going to look into this, they're going if to, if you work in a funeral home, you got to know they're going to do an autopsy. Right. And when they do an autopsy, they're going to find the injuries. 
How in your little pea brain mind of a murderer do you rationalize this away? Uh, no idea. It just shows he is fully uh, out of touch with reality as to what's going to happen. Maybe he thought, well, you know, I live in Podunk, Pennsylvania, and uh, these small town cops are not going to be able to figure this out. Well, you know, we might not be the brightest bulbs on the tree as small town cops, but we're better than him. And think about it. If somebody's going to come in, uh, I was going to say home invader, but not so much a home invader. But if somebody's going to come in and rob her to the point of committing murder, how are they going to know where to find the fluids so that they can clean up afterwards and not know that somebody else is in the house and might come out and catch them? You know, that's not something that's going to happen in 15 or 20 seconds. That's going to take you some time to go get the solution, to get the rags out the bucket, then get over there and scrub all the blood away and then rinse it away. I'm pretty sure you're going to wake up somebody else in the house. If there's in somebody in the house, in which we know he's saying he was in there along with three kids. Um, <laughs> it well, it gets, it gets a little bit more lurid, though, Murph. Guess what? What? Do you think this was his first affair? I doubt it very seriously. It was not. You know how they caught him the first time? You know how his wife caught him the first time having an affair? How? Emails? No. Phone bill. Remember in the old days of the cell oh, phone yeah. to where they charged you by the minute? Yep. And you saw exactly the numbers. It was a gigantic phone bill. And so now you start saying, why this day? Why now? Well, guess what was about to drop in the mail? Time for the phone bill to show up. A 688 dollar telephone bill. And this guy had actually told one of his friends, he wow. says, I can't have another affair. I'll lose Jan if I have another affair. Wow. So this phone bill is going to show up. He knows that she knows he's cheating and is going to get caught again. So what do you think happens? He goes and kills his wife. That's ridiculous. That's... <clears throat> I mean, why not just get a divorce? You don't have to kill somebody. Well, now, Murph, (laughs) it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Okay, so this was on this was in July, right? July twenty second. Is this going to be another girlfriend that we didn't know about yet? Finds out about no, (laughs) no. This this actually gets this this gets uh, this this starts adding to why all of this stuff was going on potentially on August first, two thousand eight, about eight days after the homicide. Mm -hmm. The mistress, Angela Funk. Took a pregnancy test. Guess what? Oh, I'm going to say it's positive. Well, came back positive since her husband had had a vasectomy. (laughs) Funk was certain that Michael was the father. She told Michael about it the same day. And guess what? His reaction was shock and dismay is how Angela Funk described Michael's reaction. He said under normal circumstances, he would be happy. This is obviously not normal circumstances. The day after he found out about Angela Funk was pregnant with his baby and 11 days after Jan's death, Roseboro was arrested and charged with the first degree murder of his wife. He spent the next eight months in prison before ever talking to Angela Funk again. Um, uh, and so, but so the other thing too, is you can read some of this stuff too. She has the baby. It's his, uh, they call, he's in jail. So they call and, uh, Angela is telling him, he looks just like you, Angela says to Michael. Uh, Michael says, that's what Alan told me. Angela says, yeah, he's a spitting image of you. Yeah, Michael, poor guy. Angela, I don't think it's bad. Michael, he don't have a chance. Angela, no, it's not bad at all. Michael, oh my goodness, it's so good to hear your voice. Uh, So she's trying to make sense of what's going on. And basically, you know, he's given up some stuff 
um, you know, over the phone. It, he's implicating himself, but it's mm-hmm. like, so now you start adding the phone bill. He found out about the pregnancy afterwards. I mean, obviously he didn't know about it then, but it's kind of like uh, you've got all of these things coming down and now he gets arrested. So now guess what? Now they go to jail or now they go to jail. He goes to jail and then they go to prison and or he he goes to trial, I should say. Right. So uh, but having the nice home uh, and of by the way, how nice of a home was it? He could afford a $600,000 addition, including a backyard swimming pool. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I've never lived in a house that costs that much. But, yeah, you did. You just sold one. Uh, well, that's not what I paid for it. <laughs> but you got you, That's more than what you got for it, So, or you got more than that for it. But uh, the Lancaster District Attorney said that wasn't enough for Michael Roseboro. He had a history of extramarital affairs and was so obsessed with one woman that he chose to murder his wife rather than get a divorce. So after a three-week jury trial, Roseboro was convicted of first-degree murder, which carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole. Mm-hmm. So. I'm happy. Uh, uh, that, was a, that was a good call. Um, Roseboro, so here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. If you were truly innocent of this, now you have your chance to speak before the jury, Murph. If you're truly innocent of this, what do you say when you get your chance to speak before the judge, oh, you're gonna, uh, you're just gonna explain to them why, why you're innocent, that you would never do this, that you would never have an affair. I mean, if there's women on the jury, typically they'll they're gonna be sympathetic towards the wife that's being cheated on. Uh, there's, you know, and you know this because if you've ever gone through a trial and you've been sitting with the prosecutor when you ch- select the jury, depending on what the charges are, I mean, use some common sense. A lot of this stuff is common sense. You know, yep. So uh, we had a case one time where we arrested a guy. He was selling, he was purchasing kilos of, crack, of powder cocaine in Jersey, had people bring it back to him in North Carolina. Right, He would convert to crack cocaine. And then he would give rocks of crack cocaine to underage girls to pose nude for him. And he'd take these very explicit pictures. So uh, we seized a, a lot of properties from him that were worth well over a couple million dollars. And he took us to trial. It's the only civil administrative trial I've ever been in in federal court in my entire career. 38 years, the only one. And it's not a 12-member jury. It was a six-member jury. And we, we selected six females. You thought, how long do you think that jury was out? <laughs> it took them longer to elect who's going to be in charge of the jury and fill out the paperwork than it did to find against him. Because you're, you're not finding him guilty in a civil trial. You're just simply saying, right, whether or not the assets should be seized and whether right. or not the seizure was lawful. Exactly. And, and it was, you know, and his defense attorney, he could he could have struck the women off the jury, but he didn't. I mean, he didn't have a very good attorney, did he? <laughs> What an idiot. Well, hey, anyway, so let me tell you what he finally said, what Michael Roseboro finally said. Roseboro, 42, clean-shaven and hair in a crew cut, dressed in a dark suit, looked thinner than he did during trial. He basically says one thing, and he said it without emotion. I disagree with the jury's decision, but I respect it. (laughs) Just take him away. Throw the key away. Put him in that jail cell. Throw the key away. What an idiot. Well, he did. He got life without parole, so that means uh, he will be released from the prison upon death uh, when he's put into a little pine box and taken and buried somewhere. Now, here's the sad part. He's got four kids yeah. that he has taken their mother away from him. So, you know, are the four kids going to come visit him? He's Actually, he's got five kids now because he had a kid by mm-hmm. uh, his mistress, Angela Funk. And look, I don't want to beat her up too much. I mean, 
it's you know affairs do happen a lot across the United States, but not every affair ends in murder. Right. This one ended in murder. Uh, they ended in her being pregnant and having a kid. So you've got lots of victims. You've got the wife, obviously the primary victim. Mm-hmm. She's the one that died here. You've got four kids from that first marriage, from right. that marriage, that are losing a mother. You've got Angela, who's actually a victim. I mean, her reputation. I mean, her. Um, just herself, her, you know, everything about her has been exposed in the press. So now, and she, plus she had a husband, right? Had two kids from her prior marriage. So you've got now a third kid coming into the marriage. Yep. There are, I mean, this is, there are a lot of victims in this case, but there is only one suspect. And that piece of shit is doing life in prison, which is where he ought to be. And there's levels of victimness, you know, the mother is the biggest victim, the kids right after that. But again, I, I don't want to just, pound on Angela and say, well, like, you, you, you're having an affair with this guy. I, from everything that I read and everything that I looked at, she had no idea he was going to do this. I mean, she was, they were having an affair, they were having a fling, right? But she was not saying, hey, yeah, kill her, let's be away with it. Not like this crap that's going on right now in the press with Lori Daybell and Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow, this whole case of where the mother is now charged with killing her two kids to uh. be part of this cult. Oh. Yeah, so that's I mean that's one of those things that's all over the news. So anyway, so hey, what I thought we would do that kind of ends it. But what I want to do now that you have all the facts of the case, let's close out by playing the nine one one call one last time, and now you can hear it in a whole new perspective. Now that you're armed with all of these facts, yep. and then we'll call it a day. You ready, Murph? Ready. Here we go. Thanks for counting nine one one. I'm sorry. I believe my wife just drowned. Okay. And, and what happened? I had gone to bed about an hour and a half ago, and she was outside, and then I came out, and I saw the lights were still on the pool. But, um, oh, God, this work, the tears were still on. And I came out, and I, I found her in, in the deep end of the pool. Okay. Is she breathing? No, she's not. Is she still in the water? No, I pulled her out. Okay, do you want to try to start CPR on her? I will, I will, yeah. Okay, do you need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I, 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 I was lifeguard, I, I know. Right, I, I can walk you through it if you want help. As, as I, I want to get her out of the pool. What's that? I want to get her out of the pool. You, uh, she's still in the pool? I, I, I thought you said she was out of the pool. No, I, oh my God, she's, I'm sorry, she's out of the pool. I, yeah, uh, help me through it, please. Okay, you, so she is out of the pool? Yes. Okay, what I want you to do, is there anybody else there? My my children are asleep. How old are your children? Twelve, nine, and six. Okay. What we need to do is get her on her back. Yes, sir. Okay. You have her flipped over onto her back. She's on her back. Yes. Okay. I want you to check and see if she has a pulse. Yeah. Do you know how to do that? I do. Okay. There's no pulse. There is none? There is none. What we're going to do is we're going to start the uh, the CPR, okay? Okay. Keep her head tilted back, pinch her nose closed, cover her mouth with yours, and give her two deep, regular breaths, about one second each. Okay. Is that the the siren for the fire department there? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Sorry. Okay, that's fine. Is there somebody there? Not yet, no. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to start the compressions, okay? Go ahead and put your hand on her chest. I want you to pump her chest hard and fast about 30 times, about twice a second. Okay. Okay, but the chest come up all the way between pumps. And let me know when you've done it 30 times, okay? Okay. All right, go ahead and do that. All right. 
Okay. You did it about 30 times? Okay. Go ahead and look in, I want you to look in her mouth and see if there's anything in there. Okay. The ambulance is there, sir. The ambulance is there? Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Go get them, okay? Thank you. All right. You know, I just heard, well, I heard something there, too, when he first said that uh, she is, he first said she's out of the water, right? Yeah. And then he said she's in the water, and but she also said something about not breathing. Well, how would he know that if she was in the water? Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is I think when he, I think literally when she got pulled out of the water was when uh, they were, they were, he was supposed to be doing chest compressions. Yeah. Because that's when he really sounded out of breath. I think he heard the ambulance coming. That's when he realized, I got to get her out of the water, right? So yeah. um, that's probably when it happened. But anyway, as we found out, folks, hopefully you guys like this. Let us know what you think about this, because yeah. I've got several 911 calls lined up. Some of them will be truthful. Some of them will be deceptive. And some of them, I'm pulling a fast one on you, because they may be neither. Uh-oh. And you just don't know. Uh-oh. you know. And so you can there, join us and become a criminal sleuth here. See if you can figure it out. This is kind yeah, of cool, and so actually. The, Maybe we ought to start doing a test on this. We'll start putting a test on before we give the reveal. So maybe what we'll do is we'll play a 911 call and say, hey, here's what we're going to talk about next time. So, you know, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll add that into the end of this before we do that. If I get the chance, say, hey, here's next week's nine or here's the next 911 call we're going to talk about. Yeah, but our our listeners are smart enough that they'll go find the case. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't think we'll do it then. I'm sorry. You're just going to have to wait like Murph does. Okay. Hey, join me. I, you know, he likes to embarrass me anyway. So let's just see if we can embarrass him back. Uh, well, hey, no, you did good, man. You did good. You listened good. You caught something I had missed. Um, and that goes back to the other thing, too, is you cannot just rely on your hearing, on somebody else's hearing. True. You really need to have, like they say, another set of eyes on this. When you hear with stuff like this, you got to have another set of ears on it as well, too. Yep. This is fun. I liked it. All right. Well, hey, if you guys like it, thank you guys for being players. I mean, I think this is going to be a fun one. And you know what? We may just use this one as a freebie that we put out afterwards. You know, uh, we'll put it out to you guys first. But this one we may use for marketing purposes Mm -hmm. just to let people know what kind of fun stuff we do over here at patreon.com slash game of crimes. You guys know where it is because you're on here and listening to it. So what do we always say, Murph? What do we thank them for? Thank you for supporting us and joining us. Tell everybody, and thanks for being a player of the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. Uh, You missed it. Thank you for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. (laughs) Hey, people, come on back before I kill this guy and throw him in the pool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll see you guys next time. Here we go. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoy this new segment of 911. What's your emergency testing your skills against mine and Murph's? See what you think. We've got a lot of calls coming up, some that are truthful, some that are deceptive, and some that will throw you for a loop. So make sure you stay tuned and if you want to hear these, you can only hear them one place. That's patreon.com/ 
slash Game of Crimes. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you over on Patreon. And thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes.